If everything is great, why don't we feel like it is? For young people in particular, the dream seems to be completely out of their reach. Homelessness, like we've never seen before. People would rather gamble on the stock market and meme coins than they feel confident enough to start a business. It doesn't seem like anything is working. Yet the more it doesn't seem like anything is working, the more they tell us it's awesome and great. Just a couple days ago, the Wall Street Journal published an article which was titled, Why Americans Are So Down on a Strong Economy. Is it actually strong? The more, the more they feel they have to tell you how great it is, the more you know the truth. If you're explaining, you're losing. Now, we've been here before. And while some of the numbers actually look pretty good, we have to understand that beyond those numbers, as well as from a different perspective, there is everything to this feeling that something seems to be wrong. We feel the instability like we're being left behind because we are. Take a look at U.S. GDP, for example. The last couple quarters of GDP were absolutely terrific when you look at them as a quarter-over-quarter quarter growth rate. But put that into, a con into context where real GDP is aligned to the pre-pandemic trend. What you see is that despite the bump in the last half of last year, GDP in real terms, price-adjusted terms, remains behind the pre-pandemic trend, which wasn't all that good to begin with. In other words, while we feel like we're being left behind, here's the mainstream statistics on the economy that show, yes, we are actually being left behind. You feel that instability, even if the growth rates of the final two quarters of last year were terrific. And it's not just the United States. You can see similar results around the rest of the world. Look at European GDP, which has contracted back and forth over the last five quarters, but for the last five quarters gone nowhere, and it never came close to reaching the pre-pandemic trend either. And now it's just getting further and further and further behind. Yet in Europe as the U.S., they refuse to talk about the R word. They refuse to talk about the instability that Americans like Europeans, like Chinese, like Japanese, and many people around the world, especially those who are participating in the Great Migration, absolutely feel because it is absolutely there. Now, as I mentioned, we've been here before, just not any time recently. And in those past episodes, we can look back on them and see and find some clues about what's really happening here. Understanding these processes helps us understand maybe how to get how to deal with them and how to get out of this mess because it is absolutely a mess. The more they tell you how great it is, the more you know it's not. According to the NBER, the group of economists which have taken it upon themselves to date business cycles, officially, quasi-officially date business cycles, the longest contraction in American economic history was between 1873 and 1878, what is called the Long Depression. Now, even today, there's a, date, uh, there's a debate about whether or not the Long Depression was actually a depression at all. Because when you look at some of the statistics, the economy didn't look all that bad. But there are any number, there's a mountain of contemporaneous and contemporary accounts which suggest things weren't so good at that period of time. Not just the contraction 1873 and 1878 between those two dates. For many, the Long Depression shadow lingered well into the 1880s and even the 1890s. For some scholars, the Long Depression started in 1873 and it didn't really end until maybe around 1896. 
Even today, we, th we hear the term Gilded Age, and we think not a whole lot of good thoughts, especially when it comes to the economy. Yes, there was wealthy individuals who did really well, but too many people were being left behind. Because that's true in every single economic case. There are always people who are going to be doing really well. That was true in the Great Depression of the 30s. Most people did absolutely well in the 1930s. It's the number and proportion of people who get left behind that really determines recession, depression, politics, social cohesion, and everything else. And there was a whole bunch of stuff that went on in the latter half of the 19th century, especially during this long depression period, which tells us Americans were saying something isn't right. The statistics look okay, but our lives, our, our employment appears to be threatened. And we have to keep in mind too, that these types of industrial depressions were a relatively new phenomena. For most of earlier economic periods, there were no widespread depressions, or at least when economic disruptions happened, there were easily identifiable causes to them. As we'll see here as we go forward, that's, the big, that's one of the biggest problems that, uh, that uh, plagued the period was that nobody could understand what was happening. In the, 1873, in the 1870s, uh, it was com commonly cited that there were maybe as many as 3 million Americans who were out of work during this long depression. And that at the time was a greater unemployment rate than we would even see in the 1930s. It was a massive amount of unemployment. The problem was there obviously were no statistics available to measure that type of thing. Plus, we also have to keep in mind the situation in the economy at the time was a bit different than what we know of today. It was more like the gig economy where you didn't sign up to a job and expect to be there 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year for the rest of your life. You'd make a career out of a job. It was more like you took work when you could find it. You were unemployed for a little bit. Then you took more work. But what was different about the Industrial Depressions was that the period of time in which you were out of work and couldn't find work seemed to be much longer. And when you could find work, the pay was substantially less. So you were much more, much worse off for these periods. Yet, nobody could figure out where these were coming from. Not only was it a new phenomenon, what made it new was how widespread it got to be. When people were out of work and stuck out of work, it seemed like they were not the only ones. In fact, that's where this 3 million statistic came from. It wasn't a scientific number. It wasn't even, it wasn't even a formal uh, estimate. It was basically people saying, we see lots of idleness around the, economy, around, the, around the entire country, and therefore there must be such an enormous problem that maybe 3 million Americans or a quarter of the workforce is indeed out of work. Now, one guy who decided he was going to make an estimate out of the uh, unemployment, to make a scientific survey looking deep inside the economy to get at what might be happening was a fellow by the name of Carol Wright. Now, Carol D. Wright was the head of the Massachusetts Bureau of Labor Statistics in 1873, and he called that 3 million estimate of unemployment a wild guess. And what he did was he sent out a survey to various assessors throughout Massachusetts and asked them to go out and actually count the number of unemployed, but using a very strict set of criteria. And the number he got back was, rather than about the quarter million that many people thought from Massachusetts alone who might have been unemployed, the statistic he got was 22,000. So again, we see this divide between the official statistics and what most people's sense of the problem was. In fact, in the 1870s, 
you didn't you couldn't have seen a bigger divide between those two camps. But even Carol Wright knew that that was probably being too restrictive in his definitions. And Carol Wright would go on to precursor to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and even the methodology that became the unemployment rate. And what Wright was trying to get at was a very specific subset of unemployment because he believed that we needed to control for as many factors as possible without realizing that in trying to control for all of those factors, including idleness, just people being lazy, sounds familiar, right? That he was excluding too many people from his survey and therefore his results were skewed. So as I said, even Wright admitted that there was a, a, a serious depression in the 1870s. In fact, when he went on in the 1880s to be the first director of the Bureau of Labor under Chester Arthur, the first report that the Bureau of Labor put out was a volume titled Industrial Depressions. The very fact that President Arthur created this Bureau of Labor to begin with shows just how serious the economic problem must have been because politicians don't do things unless they're forced to by the threat of the electorate. And so Arthur was responding to repeated agitation because workers and everyday Americans were looking at the long depression as that 3 million number, that, that rough 3 million guesstimate, not the official Massachusetts 22,000. But Carol Wright in his volume sought to explain what an industrial depression was, to put some kind of formal investigation, scientific investigation into this relatively new phenomena that was definitely afflicting the United States. And the report he put together was 500 pages long or nearly 500 pages long. And it contained over a hundred pages of just tables, tables upon tables of statistics business statistics, wage statistics, labor statistics that he used his position in the government to go out and survey and find evidence for what was actually happening. And here's what the, the report said. History is full of accounts of crises of various descriptions resulting from various causes. Back of the age of rapid transportation, meaning before the age of rapid, rapid transportation, Stagnation in any industrial sense might result from various natural causes such as floods, famines, earthquakes, or from great political catastrophes, or from long and expensive and exhausting wars, but not through causes which are potent in producing modern depressions. The regularity and contemporaneity, is that a word, contemporaneity, which characterize commercial, financial, and industrial disturbances belonging to the modern industry, are not seen in the past. That while the extent of the existing industrial depression involves a crippling of the wage receivers of the country and a consequent crippling of the consumer power of the people, the volume of business has been fairly well preserved, at least according to Wright's interpretation, at least not reduced to any such extent as is indicated by the crippling of consumer power and that prices have constantly fallen. Along with these two features, there has been a constant diminishing of profits until many industries have been conducted with little or no margin to those managing them and a great lowering of wages in general. So according to his nominal statistics, the economy appeared to be fine, yet then he went on to catalog all the ways in which it could not have been fine. Wages, workers, 
Workers were not getting the same level of prosperity that they felt that they were getting or the economy was generating in the period before the Long Depression. Business owners, they were doing their best to keep up activity, yet they were getting squeezed at the margin, forcing them to cut back on wages. Because while businesses, business activity wasn't shrinking like we might have in our heads picturing a depression, it wasn't growing either. So we need to rethink the idea of depression. It's not like 1929 to 1933 when the economy just collapses and goes straight down, a sea of minus signs from here all the way uh, forever forward. A depression is a period when things really struggle. The system struggles, business owners struggle, consumers struggle, even if the economy is still nominally increasing. We feel that as instability even if the statistics look somewhat okay. And that's what Carol Wright was finding in this first ever report on industrial depressions in the US. As far as the long depression was concerned, it didn't seem all that bad from the surface. I'm surprised the Wall Street Journal didn't print an article that said, why are Americans so upset when everything is so great? But as I said, we know that things weren't great because of all the contemporary accounts and the reactions to it. The idea that the, the president of the United States would have to create a Bureau of Labor because the economy was just fine. Even Wright cause, called it a case of industrial hypochondria. In other words, there was more feeling behind this than actual big issue. Again, it sounds just like the Wall Street Journal article. What Wright said of industrial depressions was that an industrial depression is a mental and moral malady which seizes the public mind after the first influence of the depression are materially or physically felt. Falling prices or any of the other influential causes by which an industrial depression is inaugurated create apprehensiveness on the part of all classes, and the result is that the depression is aggravated in, its, in all its features. And there he's absolutely getting to the truth, which is we do have a monetary disturbance that creates a commercial disturbance that then leads to the contraction and maybe collapse in the real economy. But after that collapse, because it was so serious, it creates obviously an emotional response to it. We become scarred by the depression, the losses undertaken. Think about the stock market or banking panics, bank failures. These things all correspond together. And we quite naturally react to those events in very predictable ways, as human beings have done all throughout time. We respond to that. We feel apprehensive unless and until actual recovery comes about and creates another period of stability in the economy. But where does that actual initial depression come from? We feel the instability. We feel the after effect. And that after effect becomes What's, what can lengthen the depression, but where does the depression itself actually start? Well, another economist by the name of Henry George, he went looking for causes of industrial depressions, also in the 1880s. And in 1894, after another depression struck, the depression of 1893, after the panic of 1893, Henry George wrote, so the first step toward determining the causes of business depression is to see what business depression really is. By business depression, we mean a lessening in rapidity and volume of exchanges by which, in our highly specialized industrial system, commodities pass into the hands of consumers. 
This lessening of exchanges, which from the side of the merchant or manufacturer we call business oppression, is evidently not due to any scarcity of the things that merchants or manufacturers have to exchange. From that point of view, there seems indeed a plethora of such things, nor is it due to any lessening in the desire of consumers for them. On the contrary, Seasons of business depression are seasons of bitter want on the part of large numbers, of want so intense in general that charity is called on to prevent actual starvation from need of things that manufacturers and merchants have to sell. That's absolutely the case. We have the ability to produce things. Consumers have the willingness to purchase them. Something is impeding, as Henry George said, the machinery of exchange. Fortunately, we know these days what that thing is. We have a monetary crisis, a bout of monetary deflation, which is an interruption in the free flow of circulation of money through the system that usually led to banking crises, such as 2008, which then led to the economic consequences that got Carol Wright looking for them in the unemployment rate or making an official unemployment survey. We know these things all go together. And in the aftermath, Unless we get things realigned quickly enough, the recovery is hindered, yes, by emotional response. As Carol Wright said, industrial depression is inaugurated, creating the apprehensiveness on the part of all classes. That's exactly where we are today. We suffered the monetary breakdown. We suffered the economic consequences from it, and we feel the instability. But unlike the 1870s and 1880s, like the Long Depression, we actually do have statistics that tell us there is some reason to think the unstable economic situation is indeed leaving us behind. We can see it in the numbers. Nobody just knows what those numbers are. If you focus on the third quarter and fourth quarter growth rate, you think, okay, everything is fine. But if you look at the GDP numbers, just the GDP numbers in actual context, you see that there is every reason to believe People's feelings of apprehension are legitimate. They are genuine. The economy is not working. It is not working in 2023 or 2024, and it hasn't been working for so, such a long time, we've forgotten what an economy that actually works looks like. Like the Long Depression in the 19th century, what marked the Long Depression was that instability. Yes, the economy appeared to grow, but it grew in fits and starts rather than in solid, sustained fashion like it had before that time. Or like we had experienced, people my age, during the so-called Great Moderation, when the monetary system seemed to work really well without the Federal Reserve. But essentially, that's the issue that we're facing here, that level of instability that we can all feel. So the, some of the economic statistics are booming, just like they had been in the 1870s. It makes it seem like the economy's just fine, or the 1880s, but we know it's not. It, when in the end, it doesn't add up to the same boom that some of these numbers make it seem. We are indeed getting left behind. GDP makes that clear. The, the labor statistics, the legacy of Carol Wright show without fail. When you look at the participation problem, workers are being left behind because that's what happens during depression. That's the one thing that we share in common with the long depression of the 1870s. Workers are indeed bearing the brunt of all of this instability, which includes 
the supply shock of 2020, 2021, and 2022, which just made everything not just feel worse, but actually become worse. Again, look at the trend in GDP. Just in the United States, this booming economy can't even get real GDP, real output when adjusted for prices, back up to where it would have been had there been no pandemic, let alone go back to where we should have been following 2008. The path to prosperity, an actually great economy that we don't need the financial media to tell us is really great, or politicians to constantly say, this economy is doing well, you, you should feel better about it. To get back to that type of prosperity, we need stability, not this constant instability. And by stability, I mean, first and foremost, the monetary system. Because Henry George, in citing that interruption in the, in the machinery of exchange, he didn't know it, but subsequent generations of scholars did realize it, and researchers, money is the big part. It's the circulation of money in the system, the banking system, the commercial system, all of it. And once that gets interrupted, it leads to the depression and then all the lingering aftermath, which includes feelings of apprehensiveness. We should not dismiss them. If anything, we should be listening. If Americans are saying they don't feel the economy is strong, rather than tell them they're wrong, maybe start looking for all the evidence that shows they're actually right. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence, a true mountain of evidence that points to a silent depression, Emile's term, over the last 15 or so years. And I've talked about that in this previous video here. As always, I thank you very much for joining me. Huge thank you. You're at University members and subscribers. Until next time, take care.